0: My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flack. Episode 189, Joysticks. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to another episode of You Don't Know Flack. Today is September 12th, and I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. On today's episode of You Don't Know Flack, we will be talking about joysticks. Now, as you know, I like to save my... Show notes for the podcast on my handy-dandy Commodore 64. So as I load those notes back up to read through them, that will give us a few minutes to talk on this week's Loading Time. Loading Time. Loading Time. Loading Time. Welcome back to You Don't Know Flack. You may have noticed that this week's show is a couple of days late. We have had some drama in our neighborhood. As you know, I live in Oklahoma and in the middle of my neighborhood is a working oil pump, which is, uh, when we looked at this house, my only question was, is it going to be loud? I can barely see it from my house. You have to stand in the exact right spot and look in between, uh, a couple down a couple of streets. Um, and it's not loud. You can't hear it at all. Uh, but I never asked if it was safe and apparently, uh, oil pumps, produce some sort of gas, which has to be pumped out away from the oil pump. It is routed underground in my neighborhood. And apparently that exhaust pipe sprung a leak and was leaking gas into a house that's uh, across the street with diagonal from me. And so those people called the gas company, said they smelled gas and a gas truck arrived on my street. I live on a dead end. So there's not a lot of traffic that comes, uh, goes back and forth in front of my house. But this gas company truck showed up and then a second truck. And by the time I went outside, looked there were about eight white trucks and two fire trucks investigating the gas leak. I suppose if it was that dangerous, they would have told us to, to leave, <laughs> to get out of our house or something, but, uh, uh, they didn't do that. We, uh, uh, stuck around. In fact, we did the typical Oklahoma thing when there's a a tornado, when there's a, a tornado, my wife will go clean out in the garage and make sure we can get into the storm shelter and she will be watching the news. And I get a beer and go outside and, and stand there and watch the tornado. And you can look up and down my street and, uh, Every other guy standing at the end of his driveway watching for a tornado. (laughs) So uh, when I went outside to go see what was going on with the gas like my neighbor was standing outside and he gave me the the skinny of what was going on and we stood out there and watched them. Uh, They, uh, I guess, dug up uh, whatever the, the problem was and were working on fixing it. But what I didn't realize was that they had shut off the power to the street and then turned it back on. So when I came inside, I noticed my power had been off and my computer was off. And then I realized that I'd had the this episode, essentially, of You Don't Know Flag open in my editor. Uh, and uh, when the power went off, I hadn't saved it, and I lost all my work, and part of it was corrupt, wouldn't even <laughs> load back in one of the audio segments. So instead of trying to patch everything together and whatnot, I just decided to uh, go ahead and re-record the episode this morning. So that's what we're doing today. Uh, but... Uh, Yep, no uh, no harm, no foul. The house didn't blow up. I never smelled any gas over this way, so I guess they got everything fixed. Uh, I did use that time earlier this week to record another episode of Sprite Castle Plays. So if you're a fan of Commodore sixty game uh, Commodore sixty four games and Sprite Castle, you might want to check that out. Those are on the Amigos Retro Gaming Channel on YouTube. So you can go to YouTube forward slash amigos retro gaming. And this week I played Law of the West, which is a classic Commodore 64 game. I mentioned online that Law of the West was released for the Commodore 64, the Apple II, and the NES, but I had forgotten a minor detail in that it was only released for the NES in Japan. And so the if you get the original Law of the West ROM for the NES, all the text that you select in the game, which is really a big part of the game, the majority of the game is all in Japanese. Now there are some uh, third party, I say third party, somebody made an English hack of the game, translated all the text. Uh, and so you can, you can find that, I think you can either find that as a patch to apply to the original ROM, or you could probably just find a hacked version of the ROM if you want to try that out on the NES. But, um, uh, of those three versions, you know, I don't, I always say this, I don't think I'm being partial, but the Commodore 64 does look, uh, uh, better than the, you know, it's comparable to the Apple II, but Commodore has better color, uh, than, than the old Apple II. And, uh, surprisingly, both of those versions look better than the NES one. I think, uh, uh, the home computer, uh, really captured that game. It is surprising that it never made it to any 16 bit consoles. I would have loved to see what it would look like on an Amiga or a Atari ST, something like that. But, uh, Nope, uh, didn't make it. So if you want to play Law of the West, that's a fun game. If you want to watch me play Law of the West, go to YouTube forward slash Amigos Retro Gaming and look for the Sprite Castle Plays playlist on their channel, and you can find that video there. I got an email. No, I got a voicemail on the voicemail podcast hotline, which is 405-486-YDKF. I love getting voicemails from listeners and I got one this week from listener Ryan who had some questions about the mist. Now the mist is an FPGA computer. It has since been replaced by the Mister which is uh, open source hardware you can just buy the parts for the Mister online and put it together yourself which I find a little bit more uh intimidating to buy computer parts and put it together. I'm kind of at the age now. I don't know if it's the age, maybe it's just the interest level where I'd rather uh, somebody picked out the parts for me and I could just buy a complete system. And there are a few places like that for the mister uh, online, but a lot of them are overseas. So you have to, you know, buy it and, you know, see the currency exchange and, and deal with overseas shipping and stuff. So, uh, but anyway, uh, Ryan's question to me was, uh, he found a mist for sale locally on his Facebook marketplace, which coincidentally is my same local Facebook marketplace. Uh, so I had not seen this, but there is, uh, another local person who was selling a mist. So a lot of, uh, cool retro people, I guess in Oklahoma city. So Ryan's question to me was if he wanted to the easiest way to get into retro computing emulation. I suppose I'm not. I don't want to get into. The, <laughs> I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of whether the FPGA is emulation, simulation, whatever you want to say. Um, but you know, is the Mist a good purchase? And the the Mist that uh, is for sale in my local marketplace was about two hundred and ten dollars. So I did send Ryan a response, but I thought it was an interesting topic to bring up. Um, you know, the, the Raspberry Pi is pretty good when it comes to retro emulation. I have been playing Commodore 64 ever since, um, listener uh, Dave Zilli turned me on to the uh, bare metal C64 or BMC 64. I've been using that quite a bit lately and, uh, so the Raspberry Pi does a pretty good job on, uh, you know, even uh, 16-bit computers, you know. So, and the Raspberry Pi is so cheap, right? Like, I, I know that they get advertised as $35. $35 doesn't come with a SD card, a power adapter, uh, a case. So if you, if you buy a package that has those things on Amazon, it's closer to about $70. But, um, you know, so a Raspberry Pi would be about a third of the price of a Mist. Now... The Mist, uh, again, this one for $210. I mean, the Mist is an incredible machine. You know, if you're not familiar with FPGA, it uses cores that get flashed into a, a programmable chip. So it's more than software emulation. It's really hardware emulation, and it's it uh, does really fantastic uh whatever you want to call it, representation of that original hardware. It's also very quick. And once you get it set up, it's very easy. You know, if you want to switch between, I have mine, each different system on different SD cards. So it's almost like floppy disks. If I want to play uh, the Atari ST, I eject that SD card. I put in my Atari ST SD card, turn on the, the mist, it reflashes the FPGA and it boots up as an Atari ST. I have the Amiga I have a Commodore card. I have a uh, Atari computer card. So um, it's very simple to switch between machines and you copy your ROMs over. uh, and, And that's all there is to it, you know. So my only caveat about this purchase is that the Mist is kind of a dead system. Most of the developers have left the Mist behind and moved on to the Mister where development is, is actively happening. People are releasing arcade cores for the MiSTer all the time. Uh, updates are happening all the time for the MiSTer. Um, and the MiSTer is also, I mean, it's newer hardware. It has, uh, uh, if you look at the MiSTers, most of them have uh, HD, well, they all have HDMI output, Versus my Mist, which only has VGA output, you know. So, so there are some advantages to the Mister, um, not just hardware-wise, and it also has the ability to have a lot more RAM, uh, which I don't know is it's not going to be used for a lot of eight-bit or sixteen-bit computer systems. But I know that one of the things that gets touted is that it can emulate uh, or play Neo Geo ROMs natively because you can put so much RAM on them. So. Uh, I mean, the Mister is obviously the future as compared to Mist, and there are other FPGA products uh, out there. I know um, the Amigos have talked about the on Amiga, uh, and the, and that is being expanded to do more than than just run Amiga Core. So there's a lot of things out there, but uh, I don't know. You know, what? if you have advice, you know, my advice really was if if you're happy with what the Mist does, uh, you can save yourself some overseas shipping. And it wouldn't be a bad investment, you know, but you're buying into a, a dead ecosystem, right? Like nobody is developing missed stuff. Nobody's improving that stuff anymore. If you want to be on, uh, you know, the current generation, then you got to go with a mister, which is, you know, going to be a hundred to $150 more than that $200 investment. So I don't know, uh, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear what you have to to say if you were, giving someone advice on getting into the easiest way to get into uh, emulating or simulating retro computers. Would you tell them to uh, pick up a Raspberry Pi? Would you tell them to buy this mist for $200 to go with a mister, uh, which would be more updated or some other solution? So via feedback on that, be sure and send it my way. Uh, I saw a post this week on Facebook from Scott Lambert. Now, Scott Lambert is one of my patreon supporters and he also happens to be the owner of the underground retrocade in Chicago now I have not been to the underground retrocade I went to the galloping ghost and I haven't been to I haven't been to Chicago in like gosh five or six years so it's been a long time uh, since I've been up that way so when I go up there I'm definitely gonna go check out the underground retrocade but Uh, Scott had a a post on Facebook and it was a little bothersome, I guess, uh, is a good way to say it. It said uh, that uh, his arcade was completely empty. He says empty at 8 p.m. on a Friday night. Uh, And, um, you know, he basically says this is because of COVID. And then he added, if any of you out there want arcades to exist when COVID is over... You need to get out there and spin like it, or all that will be left is playing Mame on your couch and hoping you know someone with a couple of games in their basement. Operators have done their part, working longer hours for a lot less money to make sure the environment is safe. The time to act is now. Support your local arcade. Wow. You know, um, obviously, covid is a thing (laughs) we're all trying to figure out how to cope with covid a lot of us have been cooped up in our houses for months and i don't know that that anybody i don't know that there's a um an across the board answer for when is it safe to go start doing things you know when is it okay to to go to a restaurant you know i went out to go eat uh uh, a coworker of mine and I, we go out once a week for lunch, and we go to this restaurant that has a bar, and nobody sits at the bar during lunch. So the two of us go, and we sit at the bar, and we're the only people there. And the bartender wears a mask, and they bring our food over to us, and it feels pretty safe, you know. We went by that same restaurant on Friday, and we got a late start for lunch. We were about an hour late uh, later than, than usual and the restaurant was packed. There was no seats at the bar, all their their tables uh were filling up and we left. We didn't go in, you know. Uh I have personally seen three local restaurants that I go to that I enjoy that have closed down. Uh they just they just didn't make it, you know, for whatever some places have have transitioned well into uh carry out and, and, um, I'm going to say DoorDash, but whatever, any type of food delivery system. Uh, but some haven't, some don't translate well to that, you know, um, especially if a a place that you're going for a, you know, the dine in experience. And, uh, so it's really difficult to know where is safe to go. When is it safe to go do things? And man, I I read Scott's post and, and my heart just, um, really goes out because I love retro arcades you know we went on my uh anniversary I talked about how we we went to go stay in this cave in Arkansas and on the way back we stopped at uh, Arcadia Retrocade which is you know one of my my favorite uh uh and one of the closest retro arcades uh and it's in Arkansas and uh, Shay and those guys have done a a super good job. They're they're constantly cleaning. Masks are required, you know. Um, so I know not everybody uh, feels comfortable going out right now and going to an arcade or things like that. But uh, man, I just know that that uh, some of these places are hurting, especially you know places like arcades that require um, people to come in. You know, I mean, you've got to have people coming in through the door and paying that admission fee. So uh, if um, you know you feel Safe going to uh, a local arcade or something like that, I would encourage you to do that. Um, Or, you know, just find a, if they have a donation thing or, or, you know, I mean, if you, these types of places, if you go once a month or or twice a month, if you donate just that much, you know, admission fee to those people, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's not the same for them as having as many people there, but uh, you know, you may be keeping the doors open. You may be keeping an industry from going away. So I don't know. What the right answer is, but I definitely uh, feel for those guys, so I wanted to throw that out there. Um, I did an experiment this week. Uh, I recently followed RetroBright on Twitter. RetroBright is the product that promises to de-yellow the plastic of your aging electronics. Now so you know i guess i would go back to the saying if it sounds too good to be true it probably is um i will say off the right off the bat retro bright does work if you take retro bright which is this chemical uh compound and you put it on and i'm talking i'm sure you're familiar with actually when i was a uh, younger when. um you know, as a, a Star Wars collector, we call this Kenner Yellow. Like all these Stormtrooper figures and old X-Wing fighters and things that used to be white plastic that are now this weird kind of off-white yellowy color. We call that Kenner Yellow. And uh, old computers, you know, from the you know the 1980s, let's say, that are made from plastic. They have these plastic cases, and they have done the same thing. And I'm, I'm sure you've seen them, uh, the old... Commodore sixty four, like the C sixty four C, that was that white color. The Amigas, um, you know, all these different computers like that. I have a a, a Macintosh, an SE thirty, and it was discolored, you know. And um, so RetroBright promises that if you, I keep saying promise, like some guy promised me, and just this is what they advertise is that if you put retro bright on these cases, you then enclose it to keep it from evaporating, so you put plastic or something and put it out in the sun and leave it for X amount of time, that it will whiten those cases. It will de-yellow the color on those cases. And it does work. I think what it does is it more or less eats away that outer layer that has changed color and you're revealing uh, a layer of plastic that hasn't, uh, you know, changed color from being exposed to uh, UV rays. Now, I am not a scientist and I don't claim to know the way that all this works. But if uh, you spend a few minutes on Google, you will find the pros and cons of using retro brightness. Some people, I mean, it does look like a, a miracle thing. You put it on this and it de-ages like who wouldn't want to have that for, you know, facial cream or something like that to put it on your face and just have you instantly look 20 years younger, you know? Uh, some people have claimed that this process turns the plastic brittle. I don't know if it's because the reaction or if it's making it thinner. I don't really know. But uh, um, a lot of people have said that it makes the plastic brittle. Other people have said that you are just exposing a new layer of plastic and not only will that new layer... Begin to yellow, but it will do it faster than the original layer did. So you may not be—I uh, I almost see that as like something a used car salesman would do, like you—you you put it on your plastic and it turns it white, uh, and you sell the car, and then all of a sudden it starts turning yellow again, like spray painting over rust or you know something like that. So, um, so I, I was looking through different websites and I found some people that said you don't need to use. Well, well, let me backtrack. Uh, people have figured out, uh, I guess, the compound of what's in Retrobrite is not that complicated to reproduce. It's uh, peroxide and some other things, and you can mix that and make your own uh, home concoction that essentially does the same thing. But there have been multiple different uh, attempts to recreate what Retrobrite is doing, and some people have claimed that you could take plastic and just put it out in direct sunlight. And it will have the same effect. So I was curious. I was a little dubious about uh, uh, this particular claim because I thought that the plastic had turned yellow because it had been exposed to sunlight. So that doesn't make sense to me. It's like, oh, I put on weight from eating chocolate. So to lose weight, you got to eat more chocolate. Like, (laughs) I wish things worked like that, but I didn't really understand like how this plastic uh, turned yellow from being exposed to the sun's UV rays. And to turn it back white, you got to put it back in the sun and expose it to more UV rays. So I had this Macintosh SE30, which I got at a garage sale several years ago. Uh, I think I paid $10 for it. The computer itself is not really that yellow, but the keyboard is pretty yellow. You could tell um, because the keys haven't changed color. So the keys are pretty bright white, And the plastic surrounding it is kind of a a dark yellow. So uh, I decided to try it for myself. And I took that keyboard. And um, it is literally the simplest uh, process I've ever done for anything. I went out and put it in my backyard on a little side table in the sunlight and left it there for two days. Um, And I took some before and after pictures. And I got to tell you, it's lighter. It worked. I mean, I did not put retro bright. I didn't put anything on it. I left it literally just left it out in the sunlight, and after two days, there is a noticeable difference. Um, the The white is is almost the same color as the keys. Now, how long will that effect last? I don't know. Um, has that made the plastic more brittle? I don't know. I really don't know the long term effects of what that has done. But I can tell you, for right now, it it looks much more attractive. Than it looked before, so I'll have to to monitor that. I have some other, I have some older toys that I don't really care about that have yellowed over the years, and so I may try to do some other retro bright uh, experiments, either with direct sunlight or actually using. I have I have a uh, container of retro bright here that I I got uh, off of Twitter uh, in a, in a giveaway, so I've been wanting to try that on some toys, so. I don't know, I, I'm looking forward to, to doing that and doing some more experiments. I, again, I don't know what the long-term effects on these things are, so I will just have to to watch that and see. Uh, other than all of that, I also spent a significant amount of time uh, this week untangling joysticks. <laughs> this is a podcast, this episode is all about joysticks, and I have all my old joysticks stored out in this uh, plastic, con- uh, you know, like a series of drawers, I kind of have them sorted and kind of not, and so I, I went through a lot of them this week, and I had to untangle all these uh, joystick cables. And so I had some people come over and help me untangle those joysticks. Uh, John Schaller came over, Eric Strianisi, Matt Nicholson, Dave Zilly, Steve Rasmussen, Patrick Markey, Garrett Allier, Rick Reynolds, Scott Lambert, Jake Nautamaker, and Cobra Kai all came over and gave me a hand. Of course, they didn't really come over and give me a hand. Those are my Patreon supporters, uh, who are all supporting this show each month with a minimal, I don't want to say minimal because some of it is substantial, uh, uh, financial support. So I want to thank all those people personally for supporting uh, my podcast. I greatly appreciate it. In fact, um... If this episode sounds different, I I think I talked about this, but I recently got a scissor arm microphone. I have moved my mic inside my house so I don't have to sit out in the garage when it's 80 or 90 degrees and try to record out there. Uh, I also got some uh, sound deadening tiles, which I have on the wall directly behind my monitors now, and that seems to be cutting out most of the reverb. And so things have not sounded this good in a long time. So that is a a direct response from last month's Patreon support. So thank you guys for supporting the show. If you want to support Patreon or support me on Patreon, don't support Patreon. Support me on Patreon. Don't Patreon the Patreon. (laughs) They already got, they're already getting money. They get, they get some money from me. Uh, But if you want to support my podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara There's two different uh, pay tiers. One is $4 a month, which is essentially $1 per podcast that I'm putting out right now. Uh, And then there's a a higher tier that uh, gets you uh, some, some personal videos and some other fun stuff like that. And all my Patreon supporters all get access to the Amigos Discord server, which has tons of retro gaming and retro computing channels and stuff. So if you're interested in that, uh, check all that out. Oh, and I wanted to give a shout out to David Hearn, who, uh, is not on my Patreon, but did give me a, uh, bought me a cup of coffee through PayPal this month. And so, uh, I appreciate that as well. I have spent so much time talking during loading time that I didn't even notice. Uh, the whole episode has loaded and it has been sitting here. I don't know if you know how fast Commodore's 1541 disc drive is, (laughs) It is known for its speedy load time. So the episode is sitting here ready for me. So uh, let me just close this out by saying, if you have feedback about this episode or any episode of my shows, you can email me directly at Rob robohair at Rob dot com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore or leave me a message on my podcast hotline, which is 405-486-YDKF. Now let's get started talking about joysticks. When you pick up a modern controller, it's probably not a joystick anymore. It's probably a gamepad of some sort. But there's something about modern controllers that just feel right. They fit into your hand they're ergonomic, the buttons are located right where your thumbs are. And you might think, how did they come up with this perfect controller? And the reality is they didn't come up with that overnight. There have been lots and lots of iterations and generations of joystick controls. Um, So what we have today is not... Somebody didn't just come up with the perfect controller. Things have been being tweaked for decades. And so I thought it would be interesting to go back and look at my own personal history with joysticks. Now, as every episode of You Don't Know Flack and listeners know, this is not a comprehensive history of joysticks. This is my experience with joysticks. And so I divided my list up into three different categories. The first one that I want to talk about are uh, my memories of retro machines uh, that could be computers or consoles and the joysticks that I used with those. Um, After that, I want to talk about new joysticks that I have bought to use with retro systems. And then finally, I'm going to talk about the modern era, I suppose, of joysticks and what I use uh, and have used, you know, on the IBM PC. You know, those would be mostly, uh, mostly USB-type solutions. So um, if you're familiar with the history of arcade games, you know that the first, let's say, quote-unquote, first arcade game was Computer Space. If you've ever looked at the control panel of computer space. It looks like something from star Trek. (laughs) There are a series of colored buttons that you press. It is not intuitive. When you look at this, if you walk up to computer space, you wouldn't just say, Oh, I know what to do. You're going to be reading instructions to figure out how to play this game. Um, so if you look back to early arcade games, there were a lot of different types of controls. Of course, you have Pong, which just has um, two knobs to control the paddles. There were trackballs. I remember um, those early like Atari black and white sports arcade games that used track balls to control uh, the players. There were a lot of games that used steering wheels. There were a lot of games that used handlebars. I think there's like the... Evil Knievel Jump Cycle. Um, you know, there were even those home pinball systems that you could get that tried to simulate, you know, uh, pinball controls. So there were a lot of different, weird, uh, varying types of controls. Nothing was really standardized uh, in those early days. Now, I know that I mentioned that the first console that I ever had was Pong. And so we had Pong. Uh, it was an off-brand Pong and we had that. Um, definitely. I remember playing that on uh, Thanksgiving in 1977 because we definitely had it, uh, before I moved to the house I grew up in, which was in the spring of 78. So I, I remember it was Thanksgiving and I remember it was at that house. So it had to be 1977. Um, Pong consoles were all over the place with their controls. I mean, everyone had, you know, you had to have a paddle because that's how you played Pong, but some were heavy, some were really thin plastic, some had big dials, some had little tiny dials, you know. Um, Some had a button on the controller, some didn't. So there was a lot of variation, you know. Uh, The controller that we had was kind of this beige color on top with a silver knob, you know. I think it was probably made to look like um, you know, the same aesthetics you would find on a television uh, at that time, like silver knobs you know, uh, attached to a different color panel. So I think that's really the first controller I would have ever seen uh, or or used, you know. Uh, then we got uh, we sold that and we got the Odyssey 2. and the Odyssey 2 came with joysticks. If you've never used Odyssey 2, the, the joysticks, the actual stick part, don't feel very sturdy to me. I mean, they're really kind of thin. They're not a bad joystick. Um, but I would say the biggest downfall of the Odyssey 2 joystick is that it's hardwired to the Odyssey 2, you know, and that became an important thing later. Uh, joysticks got broken, joysticks wore out and joysticks had to be replaced and so having a joystick uh that you could plug and unplug or switch out to different kind of controllers uh you know became important so the Odyssey 2 I mean had the general idea but um didn't really nail uh you know I guess I guess the the part about having removable sticks now in 1980 is when we got our TRS-80 Model Three. That was the first home computer that we owned, and we did not have a joystick. Uh, so any games that you played on that, you had to use keys. And and uh, you know if you see games uh, that say like you know use I J K and M to move left, right, up and down or whatever. If if you're playing games on the TRS-80, for us, it was like that. We we did not have a joystick. But around that same time, uh, probably slightly before that, is when we got our Atari 2600. And of course, the Atari 2600 has one of the most iconic joysticks of all time. Everybody, I mean, if you look up, if you Google joystick, it may come back with a picture of the Atari 2600. If you look for, you know, the generic icon for a joystick, it's probably gonna be that shape, that square shape with one button in the corner and and then a, a stick on top, you know? I think, um, you know, looking back at the Atari 2600, that joystick was the first thing that I don't think you had to explain that to people. Like you put it in their hand and as long as it was oriented the right way with the button uh, where it would fit over your uh, left thumb, uh, I think people get it. I think you can turn on a game and people mush the joystick around and they know which direction to go like they, they it just it's intuitive you know and that i think was a a huge uh step and not only that but it's also removable you know and again i'm not i'm not saying that uh i want to walk this back i'm i'm not saying that the atari 2600 you know was the first console to have a joystick obviously it wasn't but um you know it was just i think it nailed a lot of things um not only again being intuitive being comfortable to fit in your hand, you could hold it for a long period of time, but also relatively durable. Now, that being said, I know three different adults. Um, My wife told me her dad was one. I know my friend Andy, his dad was one. I believe my dad is one, who broke Atari 2600 joysticks. Um, My friend Andy's dad, I know, broke one playing uh, pinball, video pinball on the Atari um, my wife's father broke one playing Pac-Man where he literally broke the entire stick <laughs> off of an Atari joystick, which isn't easy to do. Um, but, uh, for the most part, I mean, it's not uncommon to find an Atari joystick, a surviving stick today, which would make it what, almost 50 years old, not quite 50 years old, uh, uh but, uh, you know, 40 plus and have it still work. I have the button and the directions. And so, I mean, they really were pretty incredible for uh, for what they were. Now, the Atari 2600 did have several different types of controllers. There were paddles, which you could use for games like uh, Warlords or or Breakout, stuff like that. There were racing paddles, which looked a lot like those other paddles, except for they don't have a stop. Uh, You could just spin them around and around, and uh, they came with a a racing game, and uh, so we had those. Um, Now, one controller that I had that was pretty unique was this thing. I believe it's called um, Starplex or Starflex. gosh. Um, But essentially, if you look at this thing, it looks like an Atari, uh, like an Asteroids control panel. Um, It has uh, buttons for left and right. It has buttons for up and down. I believe it actually says uh, uh, thrust. So it it, it looks like, uh, I'm going to look this up real quick here. Um, Starplex. Gosh, I I knew I'd get close. Um, And and what's funny is I literally, I mean, I have it uh, on the other side of the room. I could stop and go over there. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the left and right buttons, uh, there is the, uh, down button and then the down button also says, uh, HS, which is hyperspace, right? So, uh, definitely designed to play asteroids with, it does say video game controller. And then the overlay is this weird kind of almost fake wood, uh, you know, kind of look, I guess. And, um, uh, and then there's the fire button. So all the buttons are white except for the fire button, which is red. I think that my uncle bought this controller and then got rid of his Atari and we got this from him. So I think it might have been a hand-me-down. But I but we had it pretty early on. Obviously, it wasn't great for every game, but it was, you know, it was cool for asteroids. Uh, it was good for space invaders. Uh, any type of, of vertical shooting kind of thing, like... Uh, Demon Attack or uh, Mega Mania, any of those type of games it worked really good on. So uh, I definitely got uh, some use out of this controller. There is a um, an auto-fire switch that you can switch, and that is controlled by a single AA battery inside the unit. So if you ever run across one of these and the uh, uh, rapid-fire doesn't work, you may need to pop the back of it open and replace the uh, a AA battery. But, uh, yeah, so that was one unique controller that I had for the Atari 2600. I definitely um, remember that and still have that. There was a uh, also a track and field controller that you see sometimes, which only has left and right and fire. It doesn't have up and down, so it works good for... Uh, space invaders and stuff, but, but not, uh, or, you know, demon attack games where you only have to go left and right, uh, and fire, but there is no up and down controls on that. I don't, uh, have one of those, but I, I have seen them. Um, I would say within a year or two of us having the Atari 2600 is when we got our Apple two, uh, maybe three years later. um. When we originally got our Apple II, it did not have a joystick. And I don't even remember if it had a place to plug in a joystick. It certainly didn't have uh, an external joystick port. But to me as a kid, that was the difference between video game consoles and computers. Computers had some great games, a lot of great games. Uh, And and they had graphics that were way better than the Atari 2600. But, you know, in the early days, they didn't have joysticks. I didn't have a joystick when we first got our Apple. And so that was kind of the difference. When you looked at the two systems, Atari had joysticks. Our TRS-80 didn't have joysticks. So it was a computer. You know, it had keys instead of a joystick. That That was the interface. Now, we did get an a uh, joystick for our Apple II pretty early on. I have mistakenly thought this was a Archer brand joystick. It was not. I did some Googling, and this joystick was made by TG Products. I would love to own one of these, but I only found uh, one for sale, and it was $75, so not going to happen. The uh, f- First of all, let me describe this joystick. It was essentially a heavy... I would say it's a metal box, uh, some combination of metal and plastic. It's kind of a, the cream, same color of an of a Apple II. On the left-hand side, there are two buttons that are both red that don't feel like joystick buttons. They don't look like joystick buttons. They look like buttons that would be on some piece of machinery in a factory that you would press it and it would launch a missile or something <laughs> They don't feel like joystick buttons necessarily. You could see, you could feel the spring squeak when you press these in. Um, Apple joysticks were analog. They were not digital. And In fact, uh, a lot of uh, early uh, computer joysticks were analog. And so there were little sliders on the top of the joystick for the trim uh, because they had, um, is this right? Potameters. P- uh, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but inside, and so you would have to uh, adjust these little sliders to get the joystick just to zero out. So it might have to be a little high, a little low, whatever. But you would slide these little things until the, uh, um, you know, until your guy zeroed out, and then you could could play the game. But. Um, the and the, the cable of this joystick, well, first of all, it, it wasn't a cable like you would think of on the Atari 2600 or something. It wasn't a joystick cable. It was like a flat ribbon cable that came out the back of this, which kind of adds to this aesthetic of this is a computer. This is fragile. This is not a, you know, video game controller. I know lots of people that threw their Atari 2600 controllers and nothing happened. This was not, you didn't want to throw this thing. First of all, it might break the wall, the wall with it or something. Um, but it was attached to the computer with this delicate ribbon, and at the end of the ribbon was, um, you know, a a almost looks like a chip, like an adapter with a bunch of legs that had to fit into a socket and be held that way, you know. And that one TG Products joystick that I saw on eBay has the, the legs like smashed to death. Like someone just tried to cram it into something. And so you'd have to repair this thing. And I don't want to get into that. So not for $75, but, uh, um, yeah, that is the joystick that I had. We went to the, um, national, uh, computer museum in Albuquerque many years ago when I was visiting there. And they have all these old pieces of technology. And they have that joystick. (laughs) It's like behind glass. There's nothing stranger than going into an old computer or old video game machine uh, museum and seeing something behind glass and saying, uh, well, on one hand, you could say, I used to have one of those. And on the other hand, you could say, I have one of those right now. (laughs) Like, I still have that. It's on my desk. Uh, It's just a strange feeling. But anyway, uh, that that was our Apple II joystick. Now, we only had the Apple for, I mean, we we had it for for several years, but about a year after we had it, my dad got an IBM PC Junior. And so, uh, I, I have said this many times how how fortunate we were that many, many homes did not have a single home computer in the early 80s, and we had two. We had the Apple II, the Franklin Ace 1000, which was the Apple II compatible. And uh, the IBM PC Jr. and we had a joystick for that that I call the craft style joystick. If you've ever seen a craft joystick, uh, they're they're kind of square, but the sides are angled. If you see one, you immediately recognize that shape. Uh, and the IBM they came in a box that said IBM PC Jr. and they were white. And they had two buttons on the left-hand side. They were both these small square buttons. But the way that you held the joystick, uh, button one would be your thumb, and it was black. And then button two, you would hit, it was just over the ridge, and it was red. And you would hit that with your index finger. So um, most early joysticks, most early systems, I mean, IBM, Apple, um, many of those had two buttons, uh, which... It's going to be a big thorn in my side here very shortly I'll be talking about. But um, a friend of mine had a Tandy computer and he had the exact same joystick except for it was slightly different color to match uh, the Tandy computer. And on the front of ours, there was a a label that said IBM PC joystick or something like that. And his said Tandy. So they had actually made uh, a different label to go on the front of those. But I I definitely remember... Having those now, the downside to that joystick is that not a lot of games supported a joystick. I mean, a lot of the early games in those days it was kind of the um chicken or the egg syndrome like, would you make a game to support a joystick if not enough people own joysticks, you know? And so, the games that did support joysticks were either or you could play with a keyboard or. Um, with a joystick. So I definitely remember there was a long time where we had a joystick, but most of the games that we owned did not use one. We had um, the PC Junior when it came out, and we had the Apple II for several years, and then we get to 1985. And 1985 was the year that I had already um, played on a Commodore 64. My neighbors across the street had one. My friend Andy had one. And then I met Jeff in seventh grade and uh, he had a Commodore in his room. And so I knew that I needed a Commodore 64 computer. And so I did get my Commodore 64 in 1985. Now, one of the first differences that you'll notice about the Commodore 64 is that it has two joystick ports. I don't know anybody during those early days that had two joysticks on their IBM or two joysticks... Uh, on their Apple. It was basically unheard of. I'm not saying it can't be done, but nobody did it. Uh, You know, those games were mostly one person type games, or if it was two player, it was you versus uh, the computer. Or if it was a two player game, one person used the keyboard, the other person used a joystick. And that's just kind of how it was. So the Commodore 64 really introduced, at least to me, that concept of having, two joysticks on a computer. Again, every video game console had been doing it for years. Atari and ColecoVision and Intellivision and and even Pong, you know, all these things had two joysticks where you would sit down and play against a friend. But computers just hadn't been that way, you know. So the Commodore had uh, those two ports. And if you look at a joystick port on a Commodore 64, you will see that it looks exactly like an Atari joystick port. It is a DB9 port. There are nine pins. Um, the original Commodore joystick, if you've ever seen one, the shape is so identical to an Atari 2600 joystick that Commodore got sued and had to change the shape of their joystick. It looked exactly like an Atari joystick, except for the top piece of plastic, uh, not the stick, but just the top half of the bottom base was white. Other than that, uh, I mean, if you drew a silhouette, you would be hard-pressed to tell the difference between that and an Atari 2600 joystick. And so uh, after they got sued, they changed the joystick shape to this really weird monstrosity. <laughs> it's kind of a rectangular. It's like a rectangle, and there's one button at the top that's kind of oval-shaped. It's a really goofy thing. Uh, I never had one of those because... I had an Atari 2600. And so, you know, as a kid, it doesn't take you long to realize this fits into that. And so I started my Commodore with two Atari joysticks. And a lot of people did that. It was not uncommon, especially in the early days, to see Atari joysticks hooked up to uh, the Commodore 64. I do remember having a gym stick, which looked very, very similar to the Atari 2600 joystick, except for the button. Instead of being concave, like an Atari joystick, it was convex, I guess. It was kind of round on top, and it was yellow. So if you saw one of those, it was easy to spot because it had a yellow fire button. But, but otherwise, they were shaped like the Atari uh, joystick, and I had one of those. But Jeff Jeff had these joysticks that I believe were called Point Masters. Um, there were a, a lot of different brands that that looked the same way, but the bottom of the base um, was really smooth and then really dipped in where the, the stick went. And then it had a tall handle and a fire button on top that you used with your thumb. Uh, a lot of these joysticks he had had suction cups on the bottom, which was funny because neither one of us had a desk that you could put a joystick on with suction cups. I guess... I mean, that was kind of a fad and it lasted for a long time. But, you know, I I guess the idea is that you would put the joystick on your desk with suction cups and then it was like an arcade game that you could play. But uh, it it just doesn't seem like it worked very well. And and obviously, if you pick up those controllers today, the plastic on the suction cup is like all hard and weird. Uh, (laughs) They don't work. Um, He also had a, a Star Master, which looked a lot like the Point Master. But the base was a little wider, and it had a thumb button on the left-hand side. So you could either use it like a, a conventional joystick and, and with two hands and, and press the fire button with your left thumb, or you could use the button on the top of the joystick. I don't know. They were all kind of weird. Uh, I never really liked uh, using those kind of joysticks. My first favorite joystick that I ever owned from the Commodore 64 is the craft stick. Now, the craft stick, I talked about how the PC Junior and uh, um, Tandy and, and those some of those systems had a craft joystick. This is not exactly shaped like that. It's it's similar. Uh, it's much lighter. It's very light. It feels very hollow inside. Uh, and there's only one button. I had one, and it was the same color as the Commodore 64, that beige uh you know, brownish color that the, the original beige box, uh, Commodore was, um, on the bottom, there's a switch that switches it from four way to eight way. So there were some games like eh, donkey Kong and things like that, that were kind of made difficult with that eight way stick. So you could switch it, um, to a four way, but I loved that joystick. Also, for some reason, it had a really long cable. I don't know why, um, but it was a longer cable than a lot of uh, other joysticks, and I loved that joystick. I still have two of those joysticks, I think one of them's busted, and one of these days I may try and take it apart and, and uh, <clears throat> see if it could be repaired. But, um, that was my first favorite joystick. I loved that joystick, and that was my favorite joystick of all time until Jeff got an Epix 500XJ joystick. Now, if you're not familiar with the greatest joystick of all time, (laughs) let me explain it to you. Uh, They are black with um, a a sticker on the top that has black and red lines, and then the actual joystick part is red. Uh, It is designed to be held sideways in your hand. So if you hold your hand out it cradles the joystick, and it is ergonomically designed. It's curved on the bottom, and uh, the the fire button is almost on the bottom where your index finger rests underneath uh, this controller. He actually even got these for his Nintendo. They had an NES version of this that I believe had two buttons there instead of one button. But Jeff was the first person I knew. That had the uh, Epic's joystick, and after that, uh, man, I love those. So I didn't have one for a long time. I still had my Craft joystick, but I did eventually get some uh, Epic's joysticks. You know, I, I think I put this in my notes later, but I might as well um, talk about this. I was on Digital Press, the old forum I used to go to many years ago, uh, and this was probably in the mid two thousands. And I saw someone selling four craft joysticks new in the box and 4 epics 500 xj joysticks new in the box. I don't remember what they were asking. I want to say it was $10, but I bought them all. I said give them all to me, and I figured it would be a lifetime supply of joysticks. Now the one downside of that was that the craft joysticks were not the same as the craft joystick that I had as a kid. Uh, The molding is the same, but instead of beige, like my Commodore one, they're black. And instead of the black fire button, like that was on mine, it has a red fire button. So the color scheme is the same as an Atari joystick. But the real problem with them is that they're only a four-way joystick. They don't go in eight directions. And so it's um, kind of difficult to play some games with them. So I, I think they're cool and I like them, but I don't use them that much however the uh epics as i'll talk about later i still use uh to this date by the way um i bought a uh an arcade game one time from an auction and when i got it home it wouldn't move one direction and this was very very early this is one of the first games i bought and i didn't know anything about uh uh repairing them and so jeff came over and we flipped open the control panel and it was missing uh, one of the micro switches. And I didn't know where to get a micro switch back then. And um, Jeff said he knew something that had one. He brought over one of his old Epic's joysticks and we unscrewed it and opened it up. And there are literally micro switches inside that. And we pulled it out and put it into my um, championship Street Fighter game, <laughs> attached it to the button, and it worked great. And so um, so there literally are, um, you know what, I'm... Uh, not that this is a interactive show, but right here next to me is my Epic's 500, uh, J joystick, which is hooked to my PC. And we will be talking about that later in the show. But, uh, these things have, have stood the test of time again. Uh, you know, some of this stuff is 35 years old and those things still work great. So, um, those those would be my two favorite uh, Commodore joysticks: the Craft joystick and the uh, Epics. Now, um, when we start getting into consoles of that era, um, the NES, for example, I didn't use a third-party NES controller. I just used the standard uh, rectangular controller that came with it. You know, it just kind of worked. Um, you know, especially on things like Super Mario Brothers, where you had to hold down one button to run fast and then tap the other button to jump. Uh, You know, the layout just kind of worked for that. Now, I did have a uh, NES Advantage, which was the big giant joystick thing that also um, plugged into the NES. And it made some, like, arcade-style games. Like, I want to say, like, playing Tetris, you might uh, enjoy that, or playing certain arcade games. uh, You know, Rampage, uh, just off the top of my head feel kind of better with a, a joystick like that. But uh, a lot of games weren't really designed with that in mind, and it's hard to do quick movements. You know, it can't be as quick as when you're just tapping um, the little Nintendo D-pad, which they copyrighted and was a problem for other video game systems for many years to come, uh, was that Nintendo had patented their um, the design of their D-pad. And... Um, So, yeah, we'll uh, also be talking about that. I had a Super Nintendo, but I just used the default controllers on that. Um, And then I had a PlayStation. Now, I don't really know the names of these. I know some were Mad Cats. I know maybe Logitech or whatever. But it seemed like with the PlayStation that there were a million knockoff controllers all of a sudden. Like, that became a big business. Like... Um, I know that there were some knockoff controllers. When I say knockoff, what I mean is third party. Um, you know, for the Genesis, especially when fighting games started coming out, um, <clears throat> there were controllers where you could, you know, do rapid fire, or have little dip switches and things like that. But um, if the D-pad didn't feel good, then everything else was not worth using. I wouldn't use all those other features, you know um but the playstation i definitely remember around that time like that kind of became big business with selling third party um controllers you know and in fact um when i got my dreamcast um wow. i was really bothered by the fact that it had four joystick ports but i only had one controller for my dreamcast and so i found these um mad cats controllers that looked a lot like the Dreamcast controllers, but I want to say they were see-through plastic, maybe green or orange or something like that. I don't remember, but they were cheap, and so I bought them just so I would have four controllers. You know, because it seemed weird to have a console that supported four joysticks, but uh, but only used, you know, but I only owned one. Now, people may not agree with me on this, and that's okay. But I first saw Nintendo 64 in uh, Toys R Us. You could agree with me on that part. (laughs) That part's true. Uh, I I went to Toys R Us and I saw um, Super Mario 64 and it blew my mind. I literally thought I was looking at the future of virtual reality. I'd never seen a first-person platform uh, type game. It, It literally blew my mind. And so I did not get a Nintendo 64 until... Um, the pod racer came out. That was when I got mine. And, um, from the day I got it, I could not stand the Nintendo 64 controller. I know some people have warmed up to it. Some people like it. I never found a comfortable way to hold that thing. If you held it, um, with your hands on the outside, I couldn't reach the Z button. If I put my hand, my hands just didn't fit. And didn't bend the right way to put it on the inside of the little thing. It never made sense. It it did not physically make sense in my hands, and I did not play my Nintendo sixty four. And there were a handful of games I tried to play. That is a system that I bought and that literally collected dust because of the controller. That is, um, and that's the truth. Uh, I did not play very many games. On the Nintendo sixty four, even though there were a lot that I that looked great and that I wanted to try, but I never got over um, the design of that controller. So that was uh, always a big bummer for me. When I think about Nintendo sixty four, that is the first and really only thing I think of is is how little sense the controller made. Um, not a fan of it. Then of course we move into uh, PlayStation one, two, three, now four, five is coming out soon. Um, you know, the early PlayStation one controller I thought was good with the D pad on the left buttons on the right. Um, but you know, once they, they, um, got the dual analog controls and you have the two analog sticks and that's really like the gold standard of D pads, right? Or not of D pads, but of, of game pads, right? Like that is the design that everybody else has more or less kind of been, uh, trying to achieve like the. PS2 is probably when I first got my first controller that had the two analog sticks. And that gave me that same feeling that the Atari 2600 joystick gave me. That, I mean, when I put it in my hand, I go, oh, this makes sense. Like, you don't got to explain to me um, how this works. Like, it is just intuitive and it is comfortable. And, uh, you know, there have been a lot of joysticks over the years. You know, I was talking about that StarPlex controller. It's fun. It's novel. But I don't want to play. I don't want to use that for eight hours. But a PlayStation controller, I can. You can just sit there and it just kind of falls into your hand. Your thumbs fall in the right place. And it is just comfortable, you know. So um, I will throw out uh, the Xbox 360 controller. Um, I I do like that. I think the D-pad always felt a little mushy. Uh, I, I, bought some wireless adapters that I used, uh, with a Raspberry Pi for a while so that I could use wireless 360 controllers to play retro games. And the D pad is not great for some retro games, but, uh, the 360 is the first pad I ever own that would allow me to turn on and off a console remotely. I was not an early adopter of uh wireless joysticks. I should have mentioned that I had we had the wireless joysticks for a while for the Atari 2600, but it was more of a novelty. Uh, you had to point them at this receiver and they were big and they took batteries and you know, they they just weren't a replacement for for regular joysticks. And so I know that you know they'd had wireless joysticks for other systems, but I never invested in it because it just didn't make sense like I was never that far away from my TV that I needed Wireless uh, control. I still, I know a lot of people like wireless uh, keyboards and mice, but I've never had one because I'm just not that far away from my computer, you know. But um, the the 360, the Xbox 360, I think kind of nailed the wireless controller. And again, having that button that you could turn on and off your system with, of course, the Wii uh, did that as well. But that was kind of a, a novel concept, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um. So, going back a few years, uh, let's talk about the PC. Now, I, I mentioned that we had the um, the PC Junior joystick, and then we had an XT, and we had a 286. And a, uh, you know, for a long time, we had IBM computers that we didn't own a joystick for. If you played games, you uh, some games use the mouse, a lot of games use the keyboard, and that's uh, kind of the way it was. But I think I had my 386. Um, When the Gravis GamePad came out. Now, the Gravis GamePad, uh, the original, is uh, white. It has a D-pad on the left and has four buttons uh, that are different colors on the right. The original Gravis GamePad has a 15-pin plug. Now, those, in the early days of PCs, you had to buy... A card that would support a joystick, there was no place on the back of uh, a typical PC where you would plug a joystick um, but sound cards started including that fifteen pin adapter or that uh, plug because it could also be used for MIDI, so they were advertised as a MIDI slash joystick port, and that is what the Gravis Gamepad used was this fifteen pin port uh the d-pad is um not cut out like an nes d-pad where it only shows looks like a cross it is a circle and then the part where the d-pad is is raised and right in the middle of that little plus is a little threaded uh place where you can screw in a mini joystick adapter now The mini joystick adapter did not work well. I mean, it was not comfortable to use. It didn't make a lot of sense. And in retrospect, I have read that it was only included to try and get around, which it did, um, Nintendo's patent for the D-pad, right? So all these other systems, if you think about, like, you know, the Sega Genesis or um, different types of controllers that use a D-pad, they were all slightly different. Uh, because they didn't want to infringe on uh, Nintendo's patent. And so I believe that's how the Gravis GamePad got around that, was by including that little screw-in thing and, of course, changing the shape slightly of uh, of the D-pad. Now, uh, one thing is, if you ever look at a Gravis GamePad, the original, it's not symmetrical, uh, and that's not something that a lot of people notice, but uh, it the circle, like on the left that holds the joystick and on the right that holds the button... Uh, are not uh, they're not aligned in the middle. It's not like a Nintendo. Uh, what do they call that? A dog bone controller. The circle on the left is lower. The one on the right is higher. Uh, one interesting thing about uh, the Gravis game pad is that uh, there was a switch, and you could flip it 180 degrees, so you could rotate it and use it the other way. Now. Uh, the D pad would be on the right and the buttons would be on the left. That's a feature that got dropped along the way. I do know that there were some, uh, I have seen a few games that would allow you to rotate the Atari joystick 90 degrees to the right so that the button would be on the other side, but pretty much, uh, I guess left-handed gamers just learn to use a joystick the way the rest of us (laughs) righties use it. Um, you know, but uh, I thought that was a that was an interesting uh, feature was that you could flip it uh, 180 degrees and, and use it. Uh, you know, the other, you know, basically swapping your hands. Uh, the Gravis Gamepad came with the one of the early Commander Keen games, and I always thought it was interesting that it was a four button joystick, and that the Commander Keen game did not use four buttons. But later, I read um, that they. Did They changed out the game to a different... They included a different Commander Keen game... That actually did use all four buttons. So uh, I must have not been the only person that uh, that thought the same thing. But uh, the Gravis gamepad uh, for the PC... Man, that really was a game changer. That kind of turned it into a gaming machine. I remember games like um, Jazz the Jackrabbit. Um, when Mortal Kombat came out. Like all these games, all of a sudden... You weren't trying to play it with a keyboard anymore. You could actually play it with a joystick. And it started uh, to really feel like PCs would compete uh, again with uh, home consoles. So that's enough about retro joysticks. The next little section here, and it's not as long as that one, are new controllers that I have bought for old systems. And the first one on my list here. Uh, there's only three different areas that I put on this, but the first one, uh, that I wanted to talk about was the Messiah Messiah was a video game company that was going to release, did release a Nintendo clone console. If you've ever seen pictures of the Messiah N E X. It is a really slick and aerodynamic-looking Nintendo-compatible console. And this was, I believe, uh, 2004, maybe 2005. Um, So this was advertised as, you know, this was at a time when retro gaming was just... uh, I mean, people have been collecting games, right? But uh, it was starting to get big business. Like, people were saying, well, I don't... I don't have an old NES, but I want to get one again. You know, I want to get something that's, uh, that I'm not going to have to blow into the cartridges or, or change out the pins. You know, I'm just, I want to buy a new, a new retro console, if that makes sense. And so, um, the Messiah, uh, not the Messiah, <laughs> but Messiah, the company, came out with the uh, Nintendo uh, NEX, or Generation NEX is what it was called. Now, around that same time, they also, uh, or shortly before that, they released two different sets of wireless controllers. One was for the NES, and one was for the Super Nintendo. They are shaped similar to... Super Nintendo controllers. Uh, they're they're kind of round on the ends. They have the buttons. Uh, the buttons are not laid out exactly. They're kind of at an angle. Instead of uh, uh, the way the originals were. The biggest difference is the D-pad is not there. It is not a D-pad. It is a little round. It's almost like a... It's like a joystick that only sticks up like a fraction of an inch that uh, has a round thing on the end that your thumb rests into. So it moves around. You move it with your thumb like a joystick, and it takes a little getting used to. I'm not going to lie. It's not not like the original D-pads. But these were wireless, and so that was the big selling point. Uh, And you could get the, again, the NES edition or the NES controllers uh, or the uh, Super Nintendo ones. Now, I believe if you just bought the original controller, it did not come with the RF receiver that was needed to use these joysticks. But they did have a limited edition, which came with two of the joysticks. It came with the receivers and it came packed in a metal lunchbox. Uh, which was also very retro, and so I bought the Super Nintendo one. I have those; I still have them. Uh, they're numbered. I have uh, number twenty-one out of five thousand. They sold five thousand of these, or they made five thousand of these. I don't know if they sold five thousand. Um, they got mixed reviews. They work well. Uh, it's just that they're not that same original um, D-pad shape, you know. So if that's if you're looking to replace a classic controller, it's a little bit different. Um, They also plan to release uh, updated Atari controllers and updated Sega Genesis controllers. Unfortunately, they released the Generation Next, and the Generation Next was not met well. (laughs) People raked Messiah over the coals. Um, The problem with the uh, Generation Next was it used a uh, a nintendo on a chip uh, and there were a lot of promises of full compatibility and 100% you know nin- nintendo compatible and it wasn't and not only was it not compatible with a lot of games but a lot of games were um mangled the graphics would be messed up the colors would be off um it wasn't a, it wasn't a very good system it looked amazing if you ever see them they look really slick um but the processor that was running those games did not work very well. And they received a lot of backlash from the retro community. And I believe that's what did the company in and they did not release, um, the Atari or Genesis controllers. Now I will tell you, I, um, I don't remember if I ordered these or if I bought them from them in person, but I remember seeing the Messiah. Uh, it, it was a couple, and, uh, I don't know if they were husband and wife or boyfriend, and girlfriend. I don't really know, but I, I know they were a couple and I remember uh, meeting them and talking to them and they were super nice and they were super, um, I don't think they were out for a money grab. I think they were really wanting to do something cool for uh, the retro community and I think, Maybe they didn't know the compatibility of the chip they were getting. Uh, I mean, I, I remember it was being made in China and they had gone over to go see it being made and stuff. And so they may not have got what they thought they were getting. I don't really know the full story, but I do know that, um, people were not happy with it and that was pretty much the end of, uh, Messiah, the company, but I do still have those controllers and, uh, they were pretty cool. The second controller I put on this list is the Mad Catz RetroCon controller. This was a controller that was released for the PlayStation 2. If you look at it, uh, it's shaped like an NES controller. It's that same rectangular shape. It's slightly bigger, but not much. Uh, And I believe there was a blue one and maybe a gray one. I think they came in a couple different colors. Um, But they have all the controls that are required for a PlayStation 2. They have dual analog sticks. They have a D-pad. They have all the buttons. They have the shoulder buttons, start, select, everything you need for PlayStation games, but in the form factor, more or less, of a original Nintendo controller. Now, I, when these came out, was right when I was getting into, big time getting into emulation on uh, the PC and also MAME. Uh, and I was really struggling with... How did I want to play these games on the PC? And this thing seemed like the perfect solution. So around that same time, I also bought this, um, goofy little adapter that I still have. And it is a PlayStation to USB adapter. It's kind of shaped, it's blue and it's almost shaped like a triangle because you can plug in and it supports two, uh, PlayStation controllers. And so, um, uh, you can plug those uh, into the adapter and then the adapter is USB and Windows recognizes them as a controller. And so I used those controllers for a long time uh, for playing games uh, on my PC, for playing, um, oh, and MAME and Commodore and, you know, other kinds of computer games. I, eventually I, I moved on to other things, but they were a really cool controller. And I've uh, actually, while doing research for this episode, I went through, I have a, a giant tub Uh, It's actually three drawers full of joysticks and I ran across this controller and I got really nostalgic and I may bring that joystick back in the house and start using it again. Um, But uh, those were kind of cool. The other thing that I wanted to talk about was uh, Wii controllers. And so if you had a Nintendo Wii, um, first of all, the Nintendo Wii controller, the first time that you held one, wasn't that a strange experience? Like you just kind of point at the screen or you kind of wave it around and it does stuff and it was very very strange you know uh the first time i saw a wii was at the mall we were going through the mall and nintendo had set up this giant thing in the middle of the mall and they probably had 20 or 30 nintendo wii kiosks and um mason was oh i don't know let's see um Five, six, something like that, uh when the Wii came out, and uh man i they gave him a controller, and he just figured it out. I mean, it just made sense, you know it's another one of those moments where um you know you're never gonna it's never gonna replace a traditional type controller, but for what it was it was it was very interesting um but that's not what i'm gonna talk about. what i wanna talk about is the closet, and if you had a Wii. You probably had this closet. Uh, I don't know what started it. Um, Part of it would be Guitar Hero guitars. So, you know, we got Guitar Hero, and we got these plastic guitars, and the Wii remote would slide into that, and you could play Guitar Hero uh, on that. At some point, I got DJ Hero, which also had a... um, a fake plastic turntable that you use to play. And then, of course, when you got um, DJ Hero 2, you had to have two controllers for two players. So I got two of those controllers. And then Big Lots and probably Dollar General or maybe Dollar Tree started selling accessories for the Wii. Um, Wii Sports, which was the pack-in game, had tennis. And at the store, they had Plastic tennis rackets that you could put uh, the Wii controller in. Now, do you need these? Do they add any functionality whatsoever? No. Uh, you could play Wii tennis just fine with a Wii moat, but uh, uh, boy, if you put it inside this tennis racket, I guess that would be something. And so we got four Wii tennis rackets, which went in the closet, and then we got four Wii golf clubs that were the same thing—that were these little plastic golf clubs that you put the Wii mote in—and then we got steering wheels that you put the Wii mode in and and it acted like a steering wheel. And we got Wii ping pong paddles and we got multiple Wii guns. We had a Wii rifle and we had a Wii uh, pistol and we had a Wii crossbow. And um, I remember I had some adapters that made the Wii controller look like a PlayStation controller. We had a Wii uh, fake sword. We had Wii lightsabers. Uh, And then the closet was full. And then nobody wanted to play Wii. <laughs> so I don't know that I've ever owned a game system before or since where I had more controller accessories. And you know what else? Um, uh, of course, uh, by its design, the Wiimote is uh, uh, wireless, but then it also uses batteries, right? And I bought all these chargers uh, where you would, you would take off the back of the Wiimote Mote and then put it like a, a different back on it that held a battery pack, and then it would come with these USB chargers, so when you were done playing Wii, you plugged in the Wiimote, and it would recharge it instead of using AA, and then, of course, the charger things would wear out, and then they wouldn't work, and you'd have to... So now I have, like, five motes, and none of them have backs on them. <laughs> so, I don't know. I think the Wii is definitely the the console that I had more uh remote accessories to go with uh those controllers than anything else. So let's move on to uh USB controllers and things. I have a drawer right next to my PC tower. It's literally right here that um has all these joysticks that I'm about to talk about in uh, this drawer. Well not all of them because some of them are hooked up to my computer right now, but I have a drawer uh just for joysticks. Now, the first modern USB joystick that I got uh, for my computer was a Super Nintendo clone made by RetroLink. It is a USB controller uh, that looks almost identical to a Super Nintendo gamepad. Uh, and it feels like a Super Nintendo gamepad. It, it's really good. And so when I first uh, got back into playing games on the PC, uh, that was uh, the first gamepad that I had, and I, I really enjoyed that. Um, the only reason why I got away from that is because I found it hard to play games that I grew up playing with a different controller with a gamepad. In other words, when I'm playing Atari games, I really like to have an Atari joystick. Or when I played Commodore games, I like to have the joystick that I grew up playing with on the Commodore. And that's, to me, that adds to the authenticity of the experience. I don't, um, uh, I remember that they, what was that? Uh, Retron. You remember that they had the Retron, uh, console. And one of the selling points was that it, you could use, uh, Atari joysticks or Nintendo or Super Nintendo or Sega Genesis or whatever. And you could play any game with any joystick, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to play Sega Genesis games with a Super Nintendo controller. I don't want to play Atari games with a Sega Genesis controller. I want to use the right joystick, you know, and so I remember going on Amazon one time and I happened across this little adapter. It's kind of a Y splitter adapter. And on one end it is USB on the other end, it is DB nine and there's two of them. So this allows you to plug Atari style joysticks into your PC and use them, uh, for gaming, the I want to say this adapter was $12. And I think there are some things it doesn't support. Like, I, I don't know if, it, if you used a, a Genesis controller. I don't know if it supports all the buttons. I really don't. I bought it uh, so that I could use this, as he pulls it back out for dramatic effect, the Epics joystick on my PC. And so this Epics joystick right now is plugged into my PC, um, and I use that for gaming, uh, when I play Atari 2600 games, when I play Commodore 64 games, uh, that's what I use. I use that, um, on my PC and it works great. Um, I like how all these things uh, are optimistic, like the PlayStation adapter and this, uh, Atari adapter. They always have two as if I'm going to find someone else in their late forties that wants to come sit next to me and play Commodore games. <laughs> Could happen. It may happen one of these days, but right now it mostly, all it does right now is uh, frustrate me and why and I have to figure out which one uh, my joystick goes into. <laughs> but Player 2 does not get a lot of use uh, in this household. Now, I don't, I didn't buy these new, but I ran across one of these in a thrift store. And then later I ran across another one in a thrift store and I bought it and I forgot that I bought the first one. So I have two of these now. Uh, but these are called Gravis Gamepad Pros, so they are similar to the old Gravis Gamepad, except for these are USB and they're not white like the old Gravis Gamepad. They are uh, dark gray, um, but you know, essentially, they're like a, a PlayStation USB controller for the uh, for your PC now. I use these for a little bit, but they, first of all, they're very cheap. They're very uh, light plastic. Um, they don't they don't have that weight uh, that a lot of modern controllers have. And um, the D-pads on them are not great. So uh, I did get one. I did play with one for a while. I used to keep it in my laptop bag. Actually, when I'm going trips, I would throw it in my laptop bag, and if I got stuck in a hotel somewhere, I would... I would use this to play uh, a main games and stuff like that, but uh, they're not great, and so they've kind of got relegated to the uh, back of the drawer here, but I do uh, I do still have them. I also bought um, uh, these joysticks that are uh, shaped like NES controllers, but they have all the same buttons that a Super Nintendo would have, so they have... Uh, the shoulder buttons, they have four fire buttons. The front of them uh, is kind of a wood panel, but they are the square shape of an NES. And this is called the 8 Biddy It was made by iCade. But the selling point of this joystick or gamepad is that it supports Bluetooth, and um, which meant that you could use it on an iPad. And so in the original iPad, I had one and I had it jailbroken and I had MAME on it. And so I could use this little controller and play MAME with the controller. Now, I, and the controller's okay, but um, I don't know, it seems to me like maybe it used a lot of batteries. I don't remember why I got away from using it. It's not a great controller. So the selling point was not uh, the controller itself, um the you know it, the bluetooth technology was was really the selling point so i did get a couple of those they're in the drawer uh they don't get much use um i will talk about the i have an xbox 360 controller it's made by rock candy so it's an off brand uh the bottom is is white and the top is all see through blue plastic and i bought this controller specifically to play games on Steam, uh, Steam supports, uh, I don't know if it supports all Xbox 360 controllers. It seems the reason it would, since it supports this one. Um, but I got this off of Amazon because it was cheaper than a, a traditional um, a 360 controller. And I wanted a wired one because I didn't want to have to deal with uh, charging batteries and stuff. But I was getting some uh, arcade-style games off of Steam for a while. And uh, this joystick worked with that, and so that's why that is here in the drawer. Um, I bought a BX80, which was made by Binge Edwards. Uh, Binge is a uh, he's a, a journalist. He is into the retro computing scene. Uh, and he also runs BXFoundry.com, which was a side venture of Binge's, to make uh, retro basically i guess i would call them arcade style uh controllers for retro gaming systems and so um he has them available in different colors and different button configurations so there's a super nintendo one there's a uh ones for all different retro computers and some retro uh, gaming consoles and the bx80 is specifically designed for the atari 2600 it is black um, I should say that he uses all authentic uh, arcade parts. Uh, this thing is uh, in a box that 's heavy enough really to stay in place, uh, so you can put it on your desk and play and there 's a fire button a single fire button on either side of this controller so for if you 're lefty or righty, uh, you can use it. The one that I ordered came with a five and a half foot cord, uh, which is long enough, and I have plugged this in using that uh, USB adapter that I talked about. Uh, and I have used it for uh, uh, playing Commodore games and, and Atari games. mostly what I bought it for was for my physical Commodore 64. The only regret that I have, uh, first of all, I, uh, I should say that these are expensive. Uh, but they're expensive for a reason. They're very well built. They are uh, made by hand. They use authentic arcade uh, parts inside. I think they're Sanwa. Um, I could be wrong on that. But uh, uh, joysticks and buttons. I mean, so this is really like the best joystick you're ever going to buy. Uh, I mean, that's my opinion, but I mean, this is like a heavy duty. If you wanted to buy one joystick to use forever, um, I have two regrets about my purchase and it has nothing really to do with the joystick itself. It's, it's on bad decisions on my part. Uh, the first regret I have, well, One thing that I I – this isn't a regret, uh, possibly this is a wish or whatever, but I wish that it had been available in the Commodore 64 color scheme uh, instead of matching the uh, Atari 2600. So it is black and red, and that works fine. There are plenty of black and red joysticks for the Commodore, but I kind of wish it was that Commodore uh, beige color um, with uh, uh, buttons, you know, to go with that color scheme. But that's very, very – minor um you know nitpick or whatever the real regret that i have is that um for a while binge was offering a super nintendo version of his joystick and all of his joysticks can be ordered either with the authentic uh control like so you could get it with a super nintendo control in the end or he would have put a USB control on the end. I'm kind of talking in past tense because I don't think he's currently making these joysticks anymore. And if you see one of these pop up on eBay, they go for a pretty penny. Um, are definitely going to pay more than a hundred. Uh, some of them sell for closer to 200. So, um, they're, they're not cheap, but the, um, I think I, I really should have bought a Super Nintendo one because you get all the extra buttons. And I could have got it with a USB controller, so I could have used it on my computer. So I kind of wish I had bought that, and now they're not available. So uh, I keep my eye out every now and then. But but this this is definitely a, a joystick that, um, you know, like I said, this is like a lifetime investment. You buy this thing, and you could probably use this thing for the rest of your life. Um the last joystick that I wanted to talk about is this Namco arcade joystick that I got. Now I found this at a thrift store. I'm looking here sideways, I'm looking at it. Um it says Namco on it. It's a big uh arcade style joystick. Um the ball on top it looks like an arcade uh joystick with a ball on top, and the ball is yellow. Uh and then on the right hand side there are six buttons. Uh, which correspond to um, the four buttons on a PlayStation controller and then uh, L2 and R2. Uh, and then across the top there are the start and select buttons and L1 and R1 are up there. Uh, when I bought this thing, I got this for $5 at a thrift store and it looks like somebody had spilled a Coke inside it. And you know what? If... if um, Here's two reasons. If you drink uh, soda, I don't really drink soda anymore, but um, if you do, I'm going to give you two reasons right now to switch from regular to diet. Number one, a lot less calories. Uh, I really started losing weight when I switched uh, way back when, uh, when I was weaning off of Dr. Pepper. When I went to diet Dr. Pepper, I was cutting literally a 1,000 calories a day out of my diet. So that would be the first reason to switch to diet soda. But the second reason... Is that diet sodas are not sticky, they don't have sugar in them, and so they are not sticky. So whoever owned this joystick before I did um, did not drink diet soda; they drank regular soda. And when you press the buttons, they would stick down. Uh, and so I had to disassemble this whole thing, and I got pretty close to where uh, you know the things were, but the the Coke was actually inside the buttons, and uh, I just kind of poured. Uh, cleaning solution all down in that and let it dry out and uh and work the buttons and was able to get everything out of there so uh this thing works great now and uh again I use uh, it's a PlayStation controller and I use that PlayStation to USB adapter that I bought years ago and it works great so this is my uh mame controller when I play mame games I plug in this thing and I sit down this joystick in front of my computer and I go to town that's uh uh, that has been my, my, uh, main joystick for a long time. So I think that's it. I mean, I think, um, man, I've, I've got, um, I don't know how you are. I don't know if you're a, a retro collector, uh, if you have retro systems or whatever, but I have this, uh, uh, thing out of my garage. It's one of those plastic bins, you know, that has three big drawers. It's a big thing and it is filled with joysticks. I mean, uh the top is kind of I kind of made the top uh 8-bit joysticks, like Atari joysticks and uh Commodore stuff. Um the middle is uh, 16-bit. There's a lot of Super Nintendo stuff in there or whatever. And um, there's also some off stuff like a uh, you know, Atari 7800 controllers and then the bottom one is all PlayStation 4, PlayStation, Xbox, Dreamcast. Uh and it's amazing how many controllers that I have, uh, built up over the years. So I got to tell you, I'm going to be hundred percent honest. All this talking about controllers has made me want to fire up some games, uh, and, uh, and play some stuff. So I think that's what I'm going to do. And that makes this a great place to wind up this episode. So, uh, as always, thank you for listening. To You Don't Know Flack, thank you again to all my Patreon supporters. I really appreciate you guys. Uh, the money that you give to this show is going directly back into the show to make things better. So, uh, you know, if the sound sounds better this week, if uh, all the things that are going well, you could thank uh, those Patreon supporters if you want to be one you can go over to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. And finally, if you have uh, feedback about any of the news I talked about or uh, anything that I mentioned on this episode, uh, and also I should throw in... I want to hear about your favorite joysticks. What are your favorite joysticks that you bought over the years? You know, third-party joysticks or whatever controller you use on your uh, your PC or your computer today. I'd love to hear about that stuff. So, anyway, any feedback that you have, you can email me directly at Rob o'Hare at com. Join the conversation over on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash RobCast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore or leave me a message on the podcast hotline at 405 486 Y-D-K-F. That's it for this episode, so thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again next week.